I want to welcome you to West Hills, um, especially if you're newer here. We're so glad you're here. It's, a, it's an honor and a blessing to worship with you this morning, and we'd love to connect with you. You've got a new to West Hills little card in your bulletin. We'd love to have you fill that out and uh, drop that at the info bar on your way out this morning. <coughs> I do want to say a uh, word of congratulations this morning. Um, are Allie and David Toole in here with us up there? David's here. All right, David, we'll embarrass you. Congrats on uh, their wedding nuptials. <clears throat> and it's good to have you guys back with us this morning. Uh, this is our penultimate Sunday in our Essentials sermon series. And uh, since you all didn't fire me last week for uh, questioning whether or not the ordinances should be in our top 11 core beliefs, I thought that this week I would try just adding a, a subject that we omit in our statement of faith, but should be an essential here, and that's the subject of mission. Jesus has left his church with an all-important mission to passionately pursue and to one day finally fulfill, and it was important enough to him that it is recorded in all four gospel accounts and the book of Acts as the very last thing that Jesus said before he ascended back to the right hand of God the Father in heaven. If Jesus' life were a movie then, this would be his final climactic tagline that he wants to leave ringing in our ears, his I'll be Bach moment, motto. Mark sixteen fifteen. Jesus said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Luke 24, 47, 48, repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in my name to all nations. You are witnesses of these things. John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Acts 1, 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And most memorably, of course, for us here at West Hills, as we remind ourselves every single Sunday as we are sent back into this dark and decaying world to be light and salt. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I, Christ, have commanded you. Mission is so important that I think I've preached on the subject more than any other single topic in my six years here, 11 explicit sermons specifically on mission that I counted this week. But as I was considering all the different angles that I could take this morning to reframe up and tool up yet another missional message, plea to you, to God's people, I was a little surprised, almost shocked to realize that I've never actually come at this topic primarily from the perspective of the afterlife. In other words, as believers, how does our reflection on the biblical realities of heaven and hell motivate our faithful service to Christ's mission? After all, if heaven and hell really are biblical realities, and if one or the other is going to be the personal, eternal reality of every human who has ever lived, then what could be more essential to us than that, to making sure people know it? And sure enough, we do include a doctrinal position on the afterlife in our final thing statement in our creed. We believe that there will be a bodily resurrection of the just believers 
to eternal blessedness in God's presence and of the unjust, unbelievers, to judgment and eternal punishment. The Bible compels us to live our lives, our entire lives, in light of eternity. Francis Chan famously used the illustration of a rope. He had a rope, I want you to imagine this morning, a rope that starts here at the foot of the pulpit and then extends, stretches all the way out down the the hallway through the kids' classrooms, uh, down the back stairwell and back around through the doxa and through the offices and Joy Hall and the kitchen and then out the back door and then wraps around the parking lot so you'd even see it when you drove in. This morning, Francis Chan did this at his church. Uh, I'm too cheap and lazy, but uh, you can imagine, right? Use your imaginations. And then he put a tiny, barely visible strip about an inch wide of red tape on the end of the rope that was right here. And he picked it up in the sermon and he said, imagine that this rope is a timeline of your existence and it stretches on infinitely. And the red tape here, this part, represents your time here on earth. And he said, some people spend their entire lives consumed with their few short years here on earth. I'm going to work hard and save and save and save during this part so I can really enjoy this part, retirement. He said, that is insane. What about the rest of the rope? So that's what we're going to do this morning. As people who believe, who know the truth about the rest of the rope, we're going to spend this morning focused on the rest of the rope together, eternity Colossians 3 says, set your minds on the things above heaven. But because we're talking about mission, I don't just want us to reflect on the rest of our rope. If you're visiting this morning and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, if you haven't yet been saved, first of all, we're so glad you're here. You came on a perfect Sunday to be here. Uh, But I encourage you, yes, think about your rope. Think about the rest of your eternity this morning. But for Christ followers here, for those of us who who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, we all know someone who does not yet know him, does not yet know Jesus. In fact, I bet that even as I mention that, most of you have someone who pops immediately into mind. Maybe a couple faces, names pop, pop immediately into mind for you. A close family member, a close friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, And I want you to think about them this morning. I want you to think selflessly about that person in your life this morning who does not yet know the Lord about their rope, their eternity, as we work our way through this morning, okay? First, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, we need to hear from you this morning. If your people are to be motivated to take seriously your call to live missional lives, to give our lives away in the service of the calling to which you've called us. It will not be because some preacher uh, tries to emotionally manipulate, tries to uh, be really persuasive, tries to guilt or bribe your people into into mission, it will be because your Holy Spirit touches 
and changes the hearts of your people this morning and gives us more of a heart for Jesus, for the one who is lost, who would leave the 99 to go seek out that one. That's the kind of heart we want this morning. So I ask you, Holy Spirit, would you touch our hearts? Would you soften our hearts this morning? Would you cut through our excuses? Would you convict us in places we need to be convicted? And would you stir us and inspire us and empower us and motivate us to get about the business that you, Father, have left us to do on this earth while we await our heavenly homecoming? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are four essential biblical truths that you need to know about the afterlife. You see them printed there in your bulletins. The first is that death is inevitable. It is imminent, and it is a reckoning. Death is inevitable, it is imminent, and it is a reckoning. First, death is inevitable. The current death rate worldwide is 100%. Some of you will get that later. Death comes for us all. There are only three certainties in life, right? Death, taxes, and Alabama and the college football playoff game. (laughs) More than 150,000 people die every day in the world. That's more than 100 people every single minute. None of us knows when or how we will go, but all of us know that we will go because death is inevitable. And so D.A. Carson says, Whatever the church does, it must prepare its members to face death and meet God. By the way, I'm going to be quoting a lot this morning from number one, the Bible, and number two, from David Platt's 2013 Secret Church Conference on Heaven, Hell, and the End of the World. So death is inevitable. Second, death is imminent. Any one of us could be numbered among the 100 people that will die in the next 60 seconds. Because our lives are fragile and they are fleeting, Scripture is unambiguous about this. Psalm 39, 4 and 5, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Psalm 102.11, my days are like an evening shadow, I wither away like grass. Psalm 103.15 and 16, as for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. James 4.13 and 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Psalm 90 verse 10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is not, it is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away because death is imminent. And lastly, death is a reckoning. Our death, your death, will bring for each one of us a personal reckoning and accounting for things done in the body. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes the judgment. Romans 14.10-12, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, then each of us will give an account of himself before God. 
2 Corinthians 5, 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans 2, 5-11, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. <clears throat> Acts 17, 30 and 31, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. Matthew 25, 31 and 32, when the Son of Man comes in glory, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Daniel 12, 2, then many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Revelation 20, 11 and 12, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And so according to God's word, within moments of your physical death on this earth, you will appear, you will leave your earthly body behind for a time until the resurrection of the dead upon Christ's second coming, his return. But for now, your soul, your eternal soul, within moments of your death will appear before the judgment seat of God the Father Almighty to give an account, a reckoning for how you lived the short time on this earth that God gave you as a gift to be used for his glory. And you will answer for every single thing you ever said, thought, felt, did, and didn't do in your life. And speaking of God's judgment seat, Scripture envisions our trial in a heavenly courtroom. For those tempted to think that on that day they will be acquitted by their good works, their good works will outweigh their bad ones. Jesus makes it clear, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5. It's not about your good outweighing your bad. Heaven is a perfect place for perfect people. Imperfect people need not apply. Unless, unless... As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, after he concedes that no one will be counted righteous on that day on his own merit, Paul then envisions Jesus stepping into the heavenly courtroom beside him as his defense attorney. He says, Paul, formerly Saul, the persecutor of the church, murderer, yeah, he's one of my clients. His debt has been paid. His damages paid in full. My sacrifice in his place on the cross because Jesus is the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Romans 3.26 And then Jesus will declare, Your Honor, I was accounted sinful. 2 Corinthians 5.21 So that he, Paul, Will, Dale, Jan, Darlene, so that they might be counted righteous. This is the gospel, friends.
This is the, the divine exchange. Jesus' righteousness for your unrighteousness. And for everyone who has truly repented of their sins and trusted in him, Jesus, for forgiveness, that one life-changing, eternity-changing decision makes all the difference. <clears throat> that writes your name in the book of life. John 3, 16 and 18, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And that brings us to essential truth number two that you need to know about the afterlife, and that is that hell is real, it is eternal, and it will be agonizing. Hell is real, it is eternal, and it is agonizing. <clears throat> First, hell is real. You can just get this out of the way up front. If the Bible is God's word, and it is, and if the Bible clearly teaches that hell is a real, literal place where many, in fact, the vast majority of people who have ever walked this planet will one day suffer for the rest of eternity, and the Bible does clearly teach that, then you and me, the unbeliever, not wanting to believe in hell, not wanting to believe or think about the fact that a loving God could possibly send anyone there, make no mistake, that is a problem with us not with God. That just means that we have a very shallow understanding of and appreciation for God's holiness and God's justice. Francis Chan says, like the nervous kid who tries to keep his friends from seeing his drunken father, I have tried to hide God at times. Who do I think that I am? The truth is God is perfect and right in all that he does. I am a fool for thinking otherwise. He does not need or want me to cover for him. There is nothing to be covered. Everything about him and all that he does is perfect. And understand this too, friends. Fallen humanity's distaste for the doctrine of hell matters about as much as the criminal's dislike of his prison cell. You can hate it all you want, but if you break the law, you're going to end up there. You can dislike it, even disbelieve in it, but it doesn't change the reality, the unquestionable biblical reality of hell. Jesus, who is love incarnate, talked about hell more than anyone in the Bible. And he was clear about it. Hell is real. Matthew 5.22, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 10, 28, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Revelation 20, 15, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, 8, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Hell is just as real as heaven is. And if you start picking and choosing which of Scripture's explicitly clear doctrines you're going to believe in, you will inevitably end up with a God who is impotent and a Bible that is irrelevant. 
Second, hell is eternal. Daniel 12, 2, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Isaiah 33, 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Matthew 25, 41 and 46, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal punishment destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Jude 7, undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Revelation 19.3, her smoke goes up forever and ever. Revelation 20.10, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so any idea of annihilationism, this idea that maybe God allows sinners to suffer for a time, but then they will simply cease to exist, because a loving God couldn't possibly punish sin eternally, has simply no basis in Scripture. Again, it makes light of God's justice and His holiness. Lastly, hell will be agonizing. It is described in Isaiah 66, 24 as a place where their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Matthew 3.12 says the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Matthew 13.42, Jesus says, throw them into the fiery furnace. Matthew 8.12, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13.42, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13.50, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22.13, weeping and gnashing of teeth. 24.51, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25.30, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus does not want us to miss this. In Mark 9, 43 through 48, he goes so far as to say, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled with two hands than to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter the life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So if you just imagine going home today, taking a, a spoon and, or you know, some pliers or something and, and ripping out your eye and then taking a dull saw, sawing off your hand and then asking someone else, I guess, to saw off the other one, saw off your feet. If that sounds like hell on earth to you to, to envision, Jesus says, you've got even barely a glimpse of what hell in hell is going to be like. Because that's way better than hell. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty two through 24, you, and you, Capernaum, will be brought down to Hades. It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. If you weren't here uh, with us last year when we walked through the book of Genesis together and we studied Sodom, suffice it to say that that is where the phrase fire and brimstone comes from. That was Sodom's fate. And Jesus says, that's not even going to touch the eternal fate of those like Capernaum who reject me here on earth. 
In Luke 16, 19 through 31, Jesus tells a story of a rich man who refused to feed his poor but righteous neighbor, Lazarus. The rich man died, and in Hades, being in torment, Jesus said, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus just to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-8, God considers it just to repay with affliction in flaming fire those who do not know God and those who reject the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 2 Peter 2, 17, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Revelation 14, 9-11, if anyone worships the beast, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Now, I want to ask you, would you wish that kind of suffering on your worst enemy for even a day for an hour, for a minute. Imagine watching the person that you struggle the most to love, even your enemy, imagine watching them literally be doused in lighter fluid and then set on fire in front of your very eyes. I want you to imagine hearing their screams, blood curdling, smelling their melting flesh. We watched a family friend accidentally got, get caught on fire. Just his shirt caught on fire for about eight seconds on family vacation 12 years ago. It was probably the most horrifying eight seconds of my life. I still have nightmares. Not eight seconds, not a minute, not an hour, not a day, not a year, not a thousand, million, billion, trillion years but eternity. And not just your worst enemies either. Many people make the mistake of thinking that hell is a place reserved for the Hitlers and the Stalins of this world. It's not. Whoever does not believe in me and Jesus is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so that person that you thought of at the beginning of the sermon when I said we all know someone who doesn't yet know Jesus, let me ask you, in love, how much do you have to hate them to know that if nothing changes in their life, they are headed for a real, eternal, agonizing future in hell and not bother to warn them? That family friend from vacation we found out after the fact when none of us were paying attention, he had snuck down to the fire and he thought he would pour some gunpowder on it as a fun party trick, liven things up. Now, if I had known what was gonna happen after the fact, and I didn't even know this guy, he was a friend of my father-in-law's, but if I had known beforehand that it was going to cost him two days in the ER, third-degree burns over sections of his body and skin grafts, 
pain like he'd never felt in his life. And I had seen him carrying that gunpowder down to the fire. How much would I have had to have hated him to not try and warn him? This is a really bad idea. I can see the future of what's going to happen here. You don't want it. Who in your life this morning is currently carrying an eternity's worth of gunpowder down toward the flame of God's wrath and needs to be warned before it's too late? You can't stop them, right? I mean, Larry could have still decided to to pour the gunpowder on the fire. I can't, I can't stop him, but I sure as heck can, can try. I can tell him, don't do it. Church, are we telling them? Are we telling them? Are we warning them? Because not only are they at risk of going to hell for all eternity, but number three, they're at risk of missing out on all the bliss of heaven we're, we're going to go on an emotional roller coaster together this morning. Because now we get to talk about heaven. And heaven is real, it's eternal, and it's going to be glorious. Real, eternal, and glorious. Heaven is real. Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. That's where God is. So if heaven isn't real, I guess God isn't either. Matthew 6, 9, pray like this, our Father in heaven... Jesus is from heaven, John 3.13, 3.31, 6.42. Jesus returned to heaven after his ascension, Acts 1.11, 1 Peter 3.22, Hebrews 9.24. That's where he's living now, by the right hand of the God the Father, Acts 1.11. Sorry, Acts 7.55, Romans 8.34. One day he will return here from heaven, John 14. 2 and 3, Acts 1, 9 through 11, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. He tells us in Luke 15, 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Philippians 3, 20 says, our citizenship is in heaven. Heaven is real. And heaven, secondly, is eternal. Matthew 25, 44 through 46, the righteous will go away into eternal life. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but should have everlasting, eternal life. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this, light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Heaven will be eternal. And thirdly, friends, heaven is going to be glorious. Isaiah 11.10, his resting place shall be glorious. Jesus described it in Luke 23.43 to the criminal beside him on the cross as paradise. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. 
It's going to be beautiful. Revelation 21, 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. All of creation in heaven is going to be completely restored. Revelation 22, 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, the leaves of that tree were for the healing of the nations. Everything will be in perfect harmony. Isaiah 65, 25, the wolf and the lamb, they shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Revelation 22, 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, no sin, completely free from sin, Revelation 21, 27. Uh, heaven will be untouched by temptation to lesser things. Revelation 20, verse 10, we will be eternally joyful, Isaiah 65, 17 through 19, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. Matthew 25, 21, Jesus said, Enter into the joy of your master. Revelation 14, 13, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, that they may rest from their labors. Blessed and happy. It's going to be a party to end all parties. If you don't like parties, you're not going to like heaven. Isaiah 25, 6. I love parties. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Sorry, Baptists. You're going to have to learn to like wine in heaven. The Lord's wine. It's going to be beautiful. A feast of rich food full of marrow of aged wine, well-refined. Matthew 26, 29, Jesus promised his disciples, I will drink this fruit of the vine new with you in my Father's kingdom. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Huge party. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Revelation 19, 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Were any of y'all at Bush Stadium back in 2011 for Game 6 when Freeze hit the walk-off homer in the 11th inning to win uh, uh, Game 6 and, and, and then they won, the Cardinals won the World Series? Any of you? couple. All right, so Jake, I want you to take the energy and the elation of that moment in that stadium and multiply it by infinity and then stretch that out through all eternity and that is the picture that we get of what it's going to be like around the throne of Jesus for the rest of eternity in heaven. Revelation 7, 9 and 10, Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If we cheer that much for a guy who can hit a baseball, how much do you think we are going to cheer for Jesus when we're finally before him, knowing what he's done for us? That is a party you don't want to miss. And it's a party you don't want anyone in your life who you care about even a little bit to miss. 
that you know we're going to recognize people in heaven. In Matthew 8, 11, Jesus says that people are going to come from all over to get seats next to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven because they're going to recognize them. We're going to recognize each other in heaven. And so Jonathan Edwards writes, Every Christian friend that goes before us from this world is a ransom spirit waiting to welcome us into heaven. There will be the infant of mere days that we lost below through grace to be found in heaven. It means me and Polly get to see our three miscarried children again. There, the Christian father and mother and wife and child and friend with whom we shall renew the holy fellowship of the saints, which was interrupted by death here, but shall be commenced again in the upper sanctuary and shall never again end. Now, I told you, emotional roller coaster, it is true that there will not be marriage or sex in heaven. According to Jesus in Matthew twenty-two thirty. No marriage or sex in heaven. But for those like me who find it difficult to imagine eternal bliss without that, I would just comfort you this morning with this beautiful analogy from C.S. Lewis. Lewis says, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure on earth, should immediately ask whether or not you ate chocolates at the same time. On receiving the answer no, he might regard the absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sex. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is they have something better to think about. I thought that I knew pleasure as a child with chocolate. And now I've grown up. There's sex. And one day the pleasures of heaven are going to make us forget all about the joys of sex and marriage in this earthly life because they are but a shadow of the eternal pleasures that lie in store for us. And some of you ladies are thinking, yeah, 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 I know, no sex, but is there chocolate in heaven? You missed the point. <laughs> and if all of that weren't enough, you and I are actually going to get to reign with Jesus in this glorious paradise for all eternity. Ever wanted to be a king, a queen? Daniel seven twenty seven. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Jesus told his disciples, in Luke twenty-two twenty-nine, I assign you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones. Second Timothy two twelve, if we endure, we will reign with him. Revelation three twenty-one, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I conquered and sat with my Father on his throne. That's not even the best part about heaven. Eternal happiness, joys, pleasures that, that blow anything in this world out of the water, reigning as a king and queen for eternity. That's not even the best part. The best part about heaven is we get to enjoy God's very own presence forever. That's the joy of heaven. Psalm 16, 11, in your presence, O God, 
there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. John 14, 2 and 3, In my Father's house, Jesus said, are many rooms. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Get to be with Jesus forever. Revelation 7, 15 through 17, He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In Revelation 21, 3 and 4, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man on that day. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so, in closing, friends, for this sermon on the topic, remember, of mission, if that is truly how glorious heaven is going to be, and if that is truly how horrifying hell is going to be. Then, number four, therefore, mission is imperative, it is urgent, and it is delightful. Christ's mission that he left us with is imperative, it is urgent, and it is delightful. First, Mission is imperative. We already open with Jesus' commissioning text, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20, Acts 1. These are not suggestions. They are commands by your Lord. He uses imperative verbs, go, baptize, teach, preach, proclaim, witness, do it. Paul said in Romans 9 that he would wish himself accursed and cut off from Christ if only he could win his Jewish brothers and sisters to Jesus. That is how imperative this mission was for the Apostle Paul. He said, I give my life, I give my eternity for them to know Jesus. And he did give his life, ultimately, as did almost all of Jesus' earliest followers. They got it. The mission is imperative. Second, mission is urgent. It's urgent. Today, there are five and a half billion people in the world who do not know Jesus. And if nothing changes for them before they die, their inevitable, imminent death, they will spend an agonizing eternity cut off from God forever. The majority of them, 3.28 billion of those five and a half billion, don't even know about Jesus. They literally, many of them have, have never even heard his name. They're considered unreached people groups, people who have no access to the gospel. They, they don't even know a Christian who could possibly tell them the good news about Jesus. 
And so Paul asks rhetorically in Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in whom in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear unless someone's preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is why we send missionaries like the Mashburns to the Wolof and Peel peoples in Senegal why a guy like Jim Elliott, most famous modern-day missionary, was willing to set aside his livelihood and to lay down his life to take the gospel for the first time to the Quechua people in Ecuador. Because as he boldly declared, surely those who know the great passionate heart of Jehovah must deny their own loves to share in the expression of his. Consider the call from the throne above. Go ye therefore, and from round about, come over and help us. And even the call from the damned souls below, send Lazarus to my brothers that they may not come to this place. Impelled then by these voices, I dare not stay home while Kichwas perish. So what if the well-fed church and the homeland need stirring? They have the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and in the dust on their Bible covers. American believers have sold their lives to the service of mammon, and God has his rightful way of dealing with those who succumb to the spirit of Laodicea. Anyone ready to get on a plane? Here's the only thing that I would say back to Jim Elliott. Yes, I agree with all that. But my lost neighbor next door needs Jesus just as much as your Quechua natives do. My unsaved volleyball partner needs Jesus just as much as the Senegalese people do. And yes, maybe they already have access to Jesus, so they have no excuse. Maybe they've heard the gospel a thousand times already living in West County. But if it takes 1,001 times for that seed of the gospel to finally take root in the hard soil of their hearts, then God, would you give me the passion and the urgency to share it one more time with them? That's my prayer. Will you share it one more time with them today? How many times did it take you to repent finally and come to saving faith in Christ? Anyone here do that the first time you heard the gospel? Praise God if you did. Praise God. I didn't. Probably took me about a thousand. Praise God for those who didn't give up on me, who just kept preaching. Will you share it again today? They need to hear. They need to be reminded. They're living their lives for this, and we know about this, and they need to know about it too. Lastly, mission is delightful. It's not just a duty. It is a delight. What could be more delightful than knowing that God has used you in some small way to bring the good news to someone 
who needs to hear it. And, and prayerfully, that God might even use that to save that person, that you played some small part in, in, in this person's salvation story. What's more delightful than that? And so that's why in Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 42, the Jewish religious leaders are worried about uh, the, the following that this new sect called Christianity is starting to gain. And so they called in the apostles, Acts 5, and they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. And then we hear they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that, that the Christ is Jesus. Because seeing just one person, just one soul saved from the eternal agony of hell and saved for the eternal glories of heaven is worth it. It's worth it all. It is worth the beatings. It is worth the death that these apostles ultimately died. It is worth being defriended on Facebook. Whatever 21st century persecution you're afraid of, it's worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. Heaven is worth it. 